Hello and welcome to the Oxford Policy Pod. We are your hosts for today. I am Vitor Thomas. And I am Denis Karlovsky. We are both Master of Public Policy students at the Blavatny School of Government in Oxford. And this is the Oxford Policy Pod. In the end of this February, we're going to mark the passing of one year since Russia launched a full-fledged invasion of Ukraine. The repercussions of this conflict are felt all across the globe, with soaring energy prices and rising tensions. However, quite often with the constant flow of negative newsfeed, we tend to forget the heavy toll that ordinary Ukrainians are taking every day. People lose their loved ones, homes and careers every single day. So it's worth paying heed to the issues pertaining to the challenges that Ukrainian society faces today. Denis himself comes from Ukraine. Before starting his studies in Oxford, he worked as a newsfeed journalist in Ukrainska Pravda, a prominent online media in Ukraine. For the first five months of the full-scale invasion, Denisa ended up unwittingly as a war journalist covering battlefield developments and realities of occupation. In this episode, besides Denise, we have two very special guests. Professor Andrew Hoskins is a professor of global security at Glasgow University. His research focuses on the impact of digitization of contemporary warfare on society, and he's an expert in the relationship between digital tech, media, and war. We also have with us today Kanike Tursunbaeva, a journalist based in Ukraine for the past 10 years, who's also a research associate at the European Academy of Sciences of Ukraine. She's speaking from Odessa, one of the targeted areas in the conflict. The Academy, with the help of its friends and partners overseas, has been supporting journalists and scholars in Ukraine with protective gear, first aid supplies, and other necessary items in war zones. So let's dive in. Welcome to Oxford Policy Pod, Professor Hoskins and Mr. Sunbaeva. It's a pleasure to have you here as our guest. Thank you. Thank you for inviting us. So as the first question, uh, Kanike, could you tell us a little bit about the conditions under which you are currently working, living and participating in this episode? Uh, yeah, thank you once again for having me on this podcast. Well, um, as uh, for the rest of the Ukraine, uh, it is a huge challenge to uh, live in this country, let alone to work in it. Um, so as uh, everybody knows, uh, lately, especially several like late last like three months, it's been very hard with uh, the electricity, which in turn affects the heating and water. So people have to really adjust and change their schedules here. And um, uh, one of the things that might make you smile is uh, at the academy, for instance, one of the rules that we have is we're not allowed to use the phrase, I didn't have electricity and that is why I didn't get something done. Otherwise, uh, it becomes very easy for people to justify certain things that, you know, no electricity. Uh, the electricity can always be found. You can always find the certain like there are cafes that serve as the spots where people can charge their devices. Sometimes I spend in the parking lot. Uh, it has Wi-Fi. It has place where you can charge devices. Yes, it is freezing. Yes, when you're there, you're not very happy with what is going on between these two countries. And uh, But all in all, uh, it is a challenge and it makes you just more responsible and um we try to look at it as a challenge and not something that uh, should be complained about or, you know, or have or to be very sad about. 
just before we started recording, you were just telling us how, in the end, you end up getting used to, to the situation, even though uh, it's a, a very dire situation to be in. Could you tell us a little bit about this? Sure. Well, since uh, this war has been continuing, it's been more than a year. In the beginning, uh, since I have never been in a war zone, of course, it was very, very scary. Every air raid alert every news, you follow everything. Plus, when I was learning first aid, that was something very new to me. It was something scary. When the kamikaze drones are flying over your head and some of them hit uh, buildings that are not very far away from you, all of those things are very scary. But over the time, uh, I don't know if this is the right word, but you start becoming more immune to this. Like uh, at the moment, air raid alert is part of my life. It doesn't scare me. It uh, doesn't do anything. It's just the air raid alert. I know that it's there. And uh, uh, yeah, this is it. And especially for the Odessa, uh, as you know, uh, we have missile strikes that mostly are targeted at infrastructure. We don't have like, it is not the front line here. So when you keep in mind what is going on in other parts of the country, what other people are experiencing, uh, it's it would not be fair to think a lot about you when other people are uh, living in even worse conditions. So yes, this uh, I guess the person before the war and after the war is not the same. And I haven't left this country even for one day since the beginning of the war. So yeah, a lot of lessons learned. Uh, um, yeah, a lot of things change. Just before we move on to listening to Professor Hoskins, uh, could you just tell us a little bit about how technology influences your day-to-day -day during the war? Um, that, that, that's an interesting question. Uh, thank you. Uh, technology plays a huge role, uh, of course. Uh, and when it comes to this, uh, Professor Hoskins, it's, it's his specialization and I personally learned a lot from his research uh, when it comes to the concept of digital war, of uh, the subscription war. So speaking about my personal experience, um, Telegram has played and does play a huge role for people in Ukraine. As Denise knows, uh, almost every Ukraine has the Telegram uh, application and we can see news in real time. To give a very simple example, let's say there is a huge explosion that I hear right now. <clears throat> I go to the Odessa special news telegram channel and I find out, was it neutralized? Was that missile strike was neutralized by air defense or did it hit somewhere? It doesn't mean that that information is 100% true, but still, most of the time, uh, it is much more faster <clears throat> than any news outlet. That's one thing. Another thing, uh, with the shortages of electricity, uh, certainly the technology and social media and the telegram itself, uh, it's still used, uh, but again, not uh, maybe as actively as it was before, to a very minor degree. Speaking about the news, uh, this military, military news itself, I personally, uh, I am not sucked up into that medium 24 hours the way I was before in the beginning of the war. And I can say that it has a devastating effect on the psyche. Uh, 
to put it in very simple terms, you don't want to do anything. You don't see any future. It's all negative. It's all war, war, war. And I don't want to live in that. Um, I don't want to have that lifestyle. So I try to stay away from being really into inside of the war thing 24 hours. And let me just add maybe a bit of a contextual information here that probably our English speaking audience might not be very aware of what is what Telegram is. And Telegram is a is an app uh, on your smartphone. Uh, it's an instant messaging app, quite similar to WhatsApp. But the crucial difference is that on Telegram you can create uh, broadcast channels and you can broadcast videos, photos, um, sound recordings. And uh, it works very well in Eastern Europe, in most Eastern European countries, including Ukraine and Russia. And uh, after the start of the full-scale invasion, actually, Telegram showed that uh, it helps, as Kaniki said it itself, uh, it helps to get instant information about the missile attacks, the, the drone attacks, etc. And I think that there is much uh, discussion about uh, among uh, academic uh, about among the academia and politicians that Telegram can be abused as well for planting fake stories and fake videos, fake photos. And I think that there is a very interesting uh, issue to talk about later. I, I just wanted to clarify what Telegram is here, probably because some people might might not be aware of. Thank you. And also, if I may add, Telegram is uh, is something that uh, allows us to be in touch with each other. Uh, because when cellular is not working, I mean, compared to other apps, again, subjectively, personally for me, Telegram is like number one choice. When it, uh, it is. it's very comfortable, yeah. I, I totally agree with you. That's very intriguing. And I think that it's also a good hook to understand a little, to hear a little bit more about Professor Hoskins' research. So one of your research focuses, uh, Professor Hoskins, is on the consequences of technology and digital media for forgetting memory, privacy, and security. Mm-hmm. I guess the importance of security and privacy are uh, quite self-evident for our audience. But why should our listeners care about how their memories and forgetting are being transformed transformed by digital media. Mm, thank you. Um, and thanks again for inviting me. Um, I mean, the importance of memory, of course, is about in terms of war, learning lessons, you know, preventing future war, honoring the dead, pursuing justice. And what has completely transformed in the digital age, if you think about how we traditionally come to remember crises and catastrophes of, say, the 20th century, um, you know, these are normally marked afterwards by periods of limited, mostly private recollection, denial, um, unspoken trauma, non-memory. And then these wars are publicly and officially commemorated or memorialized at scale many, many, many years later. Today, we have memorializing of an event that's entangled with the unfolding of the event itself. So what an experience means at the time is shaped more through more immediate attempts to um, determine how the event will be remembered or commemorated. Um, And in some ways, you know, part of this is about a desire to to stop forgetting. So think about, you know, the the Kyiv Tourist Board has created a virtual museum of war memory, which is, you know, surreal, I think, in some ways. And you can click on places and promotional tools which 
kind of depicts Ukraine in its former pre-2022 war state. So, but but there's there's much more than this going on in this war. Um, I think, you know, the biggest transformational memory boom of all time, which this war has kind of accelerated into, you know, is never has the individual produced and shared so much information about themselves and their experiences. Um, you know, the obsession to record and to share everything, and I mean everything, is, you know, obviously enabled by the affordability, availability of the smartphone. Um, so you think about the the mass, the individualization of memory at one hand, but also the, the massification. You know, think about how in this war, the smartphone is, you know, blurred the roles of citizen and bystander and soldier and worker, aid worker and victim and journalist. And what we have is billions, you know, billions of individuals that are capturing and sharing this information as Kanye K was talking about, you know, in real time. You know, so for me, you know, never has there been so much information and disinformation available about war in real time, you know, recorded by smartphones and satellites, shared by chat and messaging apps such as such as Telegram. You know, so for me, this is the most documented war in history. You know, and in some ways that's that's an astonishing claim. Astonishing claim. But but at the same time, we mustn't get carried away because you know, the Russian war against Ukraine, you know, it's no, we can't call it transparent. You know, this notion of open source has always been a bit, I think, of a misnomer. misnomer. You know, for me, this is more like crowdsource war, you know, in war in, war in which the, the claims and the outrage and the opinion of anyone who can post or link or share kind of splinter multiple realities of experience. So that's why I call this a kind of... Um, a, a, a subscription war, you know, and as we're talking about Telegram there, you know, I think it's really important to think about the significance of Telegram compared to other apps and platforms. You know, you can choose to subscribe to channels, your own tailored version of this war, um, or you can avoid it altogether. Um, you know, this, this for me, you know, certainly makes it the most personalised war in history. So if you think about um, TikTok, for instance, you know, TikTok is very, for those people who don't understand, TikTok is a, is a short video messaging app used by billions of uh, mostly young people. And that as a platform is driven by algorithms. So you swipe, if you want more war, you swipe war, you get more war. Telegram is not like that at all. You know, it's, it's for me where this war thrives. You know, it's the heart, Telegram is at the heart of the digital battlefield between Ukraine and Russia. So, you know, more than as Kanye K was saying, you know, it's it's the it's the go-to messaging, go-to communication platform for for you know 70%, 80% of Ukrainians, um, uh, and you know, a third of Russians use it as well. So so I, I think a question to ask then in relation to your question about memory is what will happen to all of this? What difference does it make what will the millions and billions of images and videos that are being recorded and share add up to in the future in terms of pursuing justice war crimes crimes against humanity and there are some organizations <clears throat> such as mnemonics for instance mnemonics are an ngo who who capture evidence and information about um 
potential crimes against humanity, you know, in, breaches of international humanitarian law. And over about 11 years of the, the Syrian war, they captured something like the equivalent of um, 40 years worth of video. Okay, so that's, you know, millions of files. In the first 100 odd days of the, that's the Syrian war of 11 years, of the first 100 days of this, the Ukraine, the Russian war against Ukraine, um, it was something like, you know, a decade's worth of footage already. Okay, so, you know, so I think we need to begin to think about what's this mass volume of information of digital images mean you know who who will ever use it and i'm really skeptical that actually there's a kind of paradox here the more information and images we have the less usable they will become who will have the resources and the political will to to really invest in using what is an amazing in some ways an, an, an amazing source um so I think that's a real challenge for the future. And, you know, there's, there's a so-called Berkeley Protocol and other other places are trying to think about, well, how do we use these, these digital images as evidence, you know, and how do we capture testimony? How do we use it in the future? And I think it's a real, real challenge because in my work, I argue that, that actually, despite this, this real-time open source war, what we've really got here is a recipe for forgetting. Because if you want to go on Telegram and watch the war, Kanye Kay was explaining to, to us earlier, you know, how how she doesn't want to see any more of this war and that, you know, and go on Telegram channels and watch it over and over again. And and you know, who who wants to do that really? You know, in the in the reporting of all stories, all news stories, you know, there is an inevitable, an inevitable falling off of interest you know in, in in the united kingdom about a month after the war news interest just dropped off a cliff so we've got this paradox you know we have the most documented event in history yet in some ways we have the the least interested population in history and yet as we know ukraine really does need that attention and that support so so i think it's really interesting to think about how these new digital technologies seem a panacea, seem astonishing in this kind of front view of war that we get. And yet what actually will they add up to? What does what difference does this make to war and its ending or stopping? Yes, that's all extremely interesting. And I think one of the questions about everything that you just mentioned that, uh, that arises to my mind is uh, yes, we have this massive amount of information and documentation, and there is obviously a challenge in processing all this mm. and also some some sort of media fatigue uh, yeah. that you mentioned. But it also allows for both uh, people pursuing uh, adequate prosecution of crimes of war and everything to have more uh, well more well documented. Um, material to prove their points and at the same time it allows the creation of different narratives that might be conflicting so uh i'm just wondering how how do you see this um this break in not having a monolithic 
narrative of war and how individuals will be able to leverage this to different interests? Yeah, well, I, it's not, it's not, yeah, it's a great question. I mean, um, I mean, I'm very pessimistic about the future and um, the capacity. I mean, I think we need to ask, well, which organization funded, how are they going to be funded? How are they going to process and manage millions and millions of videos and, you know, and images of, of from this conflict? How are they going to be selected? You know, just the, the sheer question of provenance, you know, how do we determine? And some, you know, some people are trying to grapple with this now. How do we determine? So, for example, Eyewitness as an organization, the Eyewitness app um, is, is, is devoted to developing a technology that will actually enable the not just the metadata but a, a much more secure way of capturing an image so that it might be admissible in in court in the future but but these are relatively small scale organizations and approaches and you know however much however laudable they are however much we may support them um you know i i think they're tiny in relation to the the complexity and the scale of images of war that we're talking about, but I, I think I think you know in terms of the the current era, I think I think one of the the biggest differences, what is really really new about this war, is the the sheer number of images and videos of abuse and horror and violence that are being used by both sides. You know, I'm not you know I'm not um, it. It's astonishing. It's really astonishing if you go on Telegram, the, the kinds of, you know, it seems to me that on some channels, every image and every video is a breach, a potential breach of the Geneva Convention. Okay. So so if you think about our, our global understanding of what war is, the horrors of war, you know, think about 20th century war, we might think that we've got this amazing record of World War One, of World War Two, the Holocaust, you know, genocide through time. You think, well, we, there's these images and they're in the public domain and they are nothing in t- in relation to the scale of Ukraine. They, they just shrink into, ap- they're absolutely minuscule compared with the sheer number, the volume of images and video that we have from Ukraine of um of images of human suffering and human brutality um, and the reality of warfare. You want to see the reality of warfare, it's on Telegram. You don't want to see the reality of warfare, go over to another channel. So there's this astonishing splintering of perceptions. And to your question about, well, what does it all add up to? Well, you know, that's the future. I mean, this is the future that Ukraine and Russia are battling over, not just in terms of survival and and. You know, the, the realities, you know, the horrors of, of, of war that Ukraine is being subjected to now. But, you know, the, the, you know, the, the legitimacy, the, the memory of, of this war and what it means in the future is, I think, you know, so uncertain because the uncertainty is around, well, how will these images be used? Who will access them? Who will share them? You know, you know, they can be used by both sides by, to create very, very different narratives, very, very powerful in terms of propaganda, in terms of memory in the future. So this is absolutely unique to this war. You know, other wars, you may have some images that come out in real time. And you know, 21st century wars are often like that. But nothing, nothing comparable to this in terms of this scale and this, the accessibility and, and, you know, believe me, it's 
it's it's all on Telegram. Professor Hoskins, I totally agree with you, and I'd like to connect on your point with the massacre in Busha. I think that uh, we we all know about this. That in April 2022, the whole world was uh, shocked by the uncovering of the mass atrocities committed by the Russian military in a town called Bucha. It's a suburban outskirts of Kiev. Uh, during the first three months of the during the first two months of the war. The Russian military occupied this area and they subjected the civilian there to brutal and uh, ghastly violence, uh, torture, and then and, and they killed uh, men with their eyes tied and, uh, and, and hands tied behind their backs. Uh, among hundreds of civilians slaughtered there, there were nine children, completely under age 18. And what makes this story unique, as you said, is that it was almost happening in real time. Uh, immediately after the Ukrainians regained the territory, the video were released in the social media and it was shared massively. And then we, we saw the reporting by New York Times, by the Washington Post, by Der Spiegel, when they went there and they recollected the stories, what happened there by the CCTV footage, by talking to the witnesses. And my question to you, and, and there are many more sites like this in Ukraine, like the city called Izum in the eastern Ukraine, where, where, the same, where the similar mass atrocity was uncovered after Ukrainians regained the territory after the Russian occupation. And my question to you is that, do you think that the war in Ukraine shows that modern wars will have a, higher, a heavier toll on the, on the civilians in terms of exposure to trauma, exposure to traumatic experience? exposure to videos and photos showing very violent and brutal uh, instances of crimes and, and, and what can be done about that? I think it's a very good question. Um, I, I still think that, that what was exposed at Butcher doesn't compare, you know, with what's, what is also, you know, which, which is what is unfolding on Telegram every day. So in some senses, you have a, uh, you know, absolutely, the world's media should gather around such an atrocity and report it and show what's happened. Absolutely, of course they should. Um, but it's 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 just one event, and and I, I mean, most most audiences, most audiences around the world, do not want to see violent, horrific images of abuse and suffering and death. You know. You have to be twisted and weird um, to, to watch that. I don't want to watch it, certainly. And I don't want my children to see it. So, so you know, immediately we come to this question about the difficulties of communicating the horrors of warfare, you know, in, the con in our contemporary, highly sanitised media. And it is highly sanitised. You, you, I think, you know, when you mentioned some of those images, you know, a lot of them were kind of, you know, hidden or covered over, Blurred, or, yeah. absolutely, and that's and and that's that seems quite reasonable in the sense that if you think that most, you know, many audiences, many humans do not want to see that. You know, why should they? Um, it'd be shocking if they did. So there's always this tension. There's always been this tension between representation of the horrors of war um, and the willingness or capacity of audiences to to watch it and in that in between that you've got something called news who are a business who absolutely do not want to offend and shock 
their audiences because they they're there ultimately to to survive as professionals and to make money. Okay, so there's a number of vested interests there that that kind of clash. What you have got with Telegram and, and other social media is is something very different. You know, you've got a, a highly accessible um, vision of war that we've never really seen before at such scale in such a continuous fashion. Um, but why, you know, I sometimes ask myself, well, why, why isn't every, why isn't the world watching Telegram now? You know, I think to myself, well, why isn't that? You know, we, I can, you know, why, why isn't the world watching Telegram? The beach example is a really good one because, because the world was shocked by that and it drew lots of attention. But why isn't the world on Telegram now? Well, firstly, um, you know, I, I think, I, I think the. The obviously a lot of it's in Russian Ukrainian, so the English speaking world, you know, find it difficult to access in some way. So I kind of get that. Um, but in terms of the images, in video, Telegram, right? Yes, yeah, in Telegram, yeah, yeah. Uh, so, but in terms of the images and videos on Telegram, um, you know, they tell a very, very different story of war. So, why isn't the world watching that? And I, I guess my answer to that is one, they don't really want to, you know. I think you have to ask, well, why is this? St- why hasn't in the West we have these debates all the time about regulation and moderation of social media? You know, Facebook, TikTok. Um, you know, what are we going to do about Instagram? You know, what are we going to do about YouTube? Debates all the time. You know, and it, it's at a high policy level. It's a government level. How can um, contemporary social media organisations, um, private organisations, how can they be required to to regulate? content of abuse of extremism of stuff in any civilized society that we would agree um you know should be moderated should be restrained should be censored should be sanitized well obviously telegram doesn't has no moderation it has no sanitization it has no algorithms barely you know um and so it's a free-for-all and in some ways in some ways the reason it's 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 a free-for-all is partly because, as Kanuke was saying earlier on, you know, as a as a tool, it's a very simple, effective tool of communication. Okay, so it draws people in. It's very simple to use. It's very effective. Um, you know, very uncomplicated. But as a weapon of war, in terms of the psychological war going between Russia and Ukraine, it actually suits both 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 Russia and Ukraine to keep it there because they, you know, they both engage in psychological warfare on Telegram. Um, you know, and 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 so and so as a as a as a record of war, as a medium of war, it is unprecedented. Um, but it's but it's I still try and I can't get my head around sometimes that there's such a gap between what is unfolding on Telegram and what the Western world develop well, whatever you want to call it, mainstream media think is representable and acceptable to their audiences and so you know our history of war our history of war over the 20th century before that and over time is shaped by the sensibilities of who will go to the museum who will go to the exhibition who will go to the archive and and accept to see certain images certain horrific images of course become iconic but most of the time most humans don't want to see an adulterated horror and why should they? So, so there's the kind of um, gap, you know, between this psychological war of horror 
and the representations and stuff, the reality of war that's on Telegram, and what most people outside of Ukraine and Russia, any Russians and Ukrainians, many of them don't want to, obviously, they don't want to watch this. You know, it's a very particular kind of of warfare, but it, but it, it, it challenges it challenges our traditional understanding of the relationship between representation, knowledge about an event, and action. Okay. Yeah, yeah, I totally agree with you on this point, and probably I, I should just add that during the times of war, civilians are also desensitized to to the violence and then brutality they see, and. That's and and another point is that you know Telegram shows what happens to to democracy with no regulation, with no uh, with no censorship, right? But I want to ask you another question on a bit different topic. Sure. So after Vladimir Putin launched a full scale invasion on the twenty fourth of February, twenty twenty two, many Ukrainians they were absolutely furious when the Russian missiles started hitting their homes, killing their loved ones, but. Ukrainian friends and family in, in Russia, in big Russian cities, they, they just kept on living as it was before. Just to show a telling example from my life, my grandmother has a brother living in Moscow and she tried to call him immediately after the Russian military crossed the Ukrainian border and, and tried to back him to help in some way to, to put an end to this butcherous war. But her brother just shouted back that Russia is the best country in the world and that Ukrainians deserve what they get. In a similar vein, many Ukrainians had quite the same feeling of falling on the deaf ears, you know, when they tried to call their Russian colleagues, former school friends, uh, family members, etc. Why do you think it that? And why do you think the two nations ended up having this unbridgeable gulf between them? Um, that's a really good question. Uh, maybe more for Kanye Kaif than me. I, I can't speak on behalf of the Ukrainian people um, in, in terms of understanding. I mean, I, I, I guess... That is this topic, and, and that's why I'm asking okay. you. Well, what I will say is this, is that, um, you know, in, in terms of um, uh, Russian media, in, in terms of um, the, the power of, you know, a mainstream media within any country, I think, you know, is is very very significant. And certainly, part of this, um, you know, in terms of the feelings about um, the nation and support for the nation, some of these historical feelings run run very 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 deep. So that even information and knowledge that's completely counter to what you believe or have believed over many many years. Is is easily to some extent easily um, pushed aside. I think another theory, of course, is that you know a, a fear of reprisals. You know, in terms of publicly speaking um, in Russia against the, the Russian president and um, the prosecution of the war against Ukraine, um, you know, there, it, it's not something that would be treated um, very kindly. So I think there are a number of different historical and political and media and cultural factors that that you know lead to a, a certain semblance of what appears to be at least um you know significant in some areas support for for russians invasion of ukraine um but i think you know i, I would i'm not 
Ukrainian or living in Ukraine. So I think Can UK would probably be able to answer this question more effectively than me. Thank you. Um, well, I personally think that, uh, first of all, the states like Russian Federation and Ukraine is one thing and their relationship is one thing. And people as a nation, Ukrainians and Russians, is another thing. Um, uh, Denis, you have mentioned that the lives of Russians haven't changed. I would disagree here. Over the 10 years, the life of Russians have changed drastically. It's like appalling conditions in which they live. The Russian nation lives under fear. That's, their, that's one of the main tools of how Russian society is regulated. In contrast to that, Ukrainians are used to have like respect in the foundation of their lifestyle. So to put it like figuratively speaking, basically, if you want to have a real, relatively good life in Russia right now, first of all, you scream, laying low, uh, laying, um, sorry, uh, once again, uh, long live Putin, number one. Second thing, you have to say that all Ukrainians are fascists. And number three, you have to actively demonstrate that position be it in social media, in media, if you don't do these things, you have a horrible life. And here's an example, real-life example that I heard from one of my Ukrainian colleagues that happened in Russia. This really shows what kind of life they're, they're living. So in the household, not in public, two sisters are talking with each other and the aunt overhears them. One sister tells the other, Ukrainians also had war heroes during World War II. She said Ukrainians also had war heroes, and that's the fact. Next morning, that sister gets a note from FSB. She's taken to the court because of what she said in the household. Like so in Stalin's uh, era. Yeah. So, uh, so Putin is acting like real fascist and people are living in that fear in Russia. And I really sincerely believe that a lot of Russians are against this war, are against this war. For different reasons, they maybe they cannot show it or are not showing this actively. And on the other side, as for people who are supporting Putin, uh, these are just hypocrites, let's say so, because if those people would be having the drones and missiles over their heads and their loved ones being killed, they would say that Putin is an evil. But, you know, there is, it's, just, it's just advantageous for them to take that position. So I would really, and Denise, as you have said, as you know, there are so many relatives of Ukrainians living there and vice versa. So I really... Maybe this is too optimistic position, but I really w want to divide this relationship between two states and relationship between people. Yes, Russians and Ukrainians are different uh, in terms of and everything, uh, mentality, culture. But at the same time, I really believe that a lot of Russians are against this war. Thank you so much, Kanikayan, uh, Professor Hoskins. We're almost out of time. I'd just like to ask one final question before we wrap up. So the European Academy of Sciences of Ukraine, to which you both are affiliated, will participate with, a, with five articles in a very special edition of the prestigious uh, journal American Behavioral Scientists 
a very important peer-reviewed journal. Uh, could you tell us a little bit about the importance of this project and what our listeners can expect to, to see in those publications and how they can access it? Uh, well, um, that issue, uh, I think, is very important at the moment because it shows the voice of Ukrainian scholars that are here. And uh, the articles themselves, like 95% of the articles of authors, have been living in this condition. Some of them have been writing those articles in a bomb shelter with no internet. I mean, in, in really hard conditions. Um, and it also shows to international medium that Ukrainian scholarship is still there. Ukrainian scholars are still doing some work. I mean, they also have their own war, you know, and they're expressing it in this manner. All, all in all, in the issue, what uh, can people see? The online issue is already there. And in print, it should appear sometime in March. So, um, to put it very briefly, and Professor Andy Hoskins can uh, share more about uh, his input uh, together with uh, Professor uh, Pavel. So uh, one of the articles is about uh, is written by Dr. Oleg Maltsev. It's about does Ukraine have a right to be the member of European Union? And the main conclusion uh, of the piece is that Ukraine is already part of Europe. It is a U European country. Uh, in terms of culture, architecture, the background, the mentality, the only step which is taking, uh, which is in the middle of Ukraine becoming a European Union is just the formal voting of the parliament. Uh, another article authored by Irina Lopetyuk is about definition of war crimes. Uh, Professor uh, Lunyov, he studies the mental health of young Ukrainians all over the Ukraine, and one of the main premises is that uh, young Ukrainians are very optimistic about this, and at the same time, they are not objective about what kind of challenges they have to overcome. And the piece uh, written by Professor Maxim Lepsky is about peace engineering and the role of NATO and how it, how it can impact this situation. And Professor Hoskins, if you may please add about your input. Yeah, I just um, I think it's a, I'm I'm really privileged to be to be um, a member of the academy and to contribute to this special issue. And my small contribution is about what we've discussed today, really about the war feed, war in plain sight, about this paradox between um, war that seems to play out in a, in astonishing detail and accessibility, yet no one seems to notice. It's been a very interesting conversation, although heartbreaking as well. Uh, super special thanks for both of you, Professor Hoskins and Kanike, especially you that are talking for such a complex, uh, such a complex situation. Uh, thank you so much for participating in the Oxford Policy Pod. And to our audience, remember to follow us on social media. You can find us on Instagram as at OxfordPolicyPod underscore and on Twitter as at OxfordPolicyPod. Like, share, comment. You can find a summary of the main points of the podcast in the description of this episode on Spotify. Thank you so much.